Welcome, everybody, to episode 23 of Generation Jihad. I'm Tom Jocelyn, and I'm here once again with my colleague and partner in crime, Bill Rogio. Bill, say hi to our friends out there. Hi, everyone. We are still playing around with this podcast, still got plans in place to sort of hopefully expand it, expand what we do and we cover and our guests, and we're going to, as I keep teasing, we're going to have merchandise at some point here, we're going to solicit donations, and even though uh, Phil Hegseth, who's usually our, our tech guy and our computer guru, helps us with this, is not joining in this week looking at behind the scenes, he's sort of uh, off on vacation somewhere, Phil, I'm jealous, uh, but in any event... Um, Phil usually asks me to remind you guys to go give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts because that helps drive traffic and helps let people know about what we're doing. I'd greatly appreciate that. We'd greatly appreciate if you do that. If you want to give us less than five stars, well, just don't don't bother giving us a review, right, right, Bill? You don't have to do that. No, I think we should. You give us a review and uh, please give us five stars. Yes. We want it. Well, I, that's how the self-promotion game goes, and if you've been listening to our podcast, you know I hate self-promotion and self-marketing. I have a real problem with it. I hate even being on Twitter. Uh, so this is uh, something that's not not natural to me. It's not sort of uh, how I like to do business, but apparently that helps us get an audience if you guys go do that, so please do. Um, this week, we titled the episode for this week, it's sort of Endless Wars Part 2, because if you've been listening along to our series, you know we had Endless Wars Part 1. We dealt with the political talking points, very popular here in the United States of America, um, that America needs to quote-unquote end America's endless wars. Some of what we talk about today is going to be um, sort of repetitive. It's going to repeat some of what we said during that first Endless Wars podcast, but there's going to be some new stuff too, because this is going to keep coming up, especially between now and the 2020 presidential election. And we were struck by a couple things. The first thing that Bill and I both noticed is that um, Joe Biden has an essay in Foreign Affairs explaining his foreign policy and how it would supposedly differ from the Trump administration's foreign policy. And lo and behold, he once again uh, criticizes the um, the so-called forever wars. So that's the way he likes to put it. So the endless wars, he goes forever wars. By the way, Bill, it's kind of funny, isn't it? There? There's sort of a contradiction here. People are talking about ending the forever wars or ending the endless wars. Well, they're not really endless or forever if you can end them, right? So That's right. Exactly. It, uh, but let's not in- inject logic here. Tom. Yeah, why have any specific language, right? Why, why get specific with our language? We're only talking about lives on the line. It doesn't, you know, who cares, right? As we've said numerous times, they should just say, Let's end our involvement in these wars. Right. That would be logical. Right. Um, but again, we're not talking about logic here. But so anyway, Biden in his essay, which is, of course, most likely written by his advisors, not by him. Um, it says it's past the first sentence. And there's a key paragraph. And I'm going to read a little bit from this key paragraph because I think it's it's useful to sort of frame all this. And by the way, none of this is political from perspective Bill and I have. Um, we're going to talk about Trump's uh Trump employs the same rhetoric. President Trump says he constantly says he wants to end the endless wars, the forever wars. So a lot of the arguments that we're going to say here are basically cut against both political parties or just trying to basically frame the reality of what's going on versus the political rhetoric on both sides of the aisle. Um, so none of this is political. This is all purely just about what's actually going on and having a frank, honest conversation about what the U.S. is doing and whether or not it's worth doing. And that's that's certainly worth debating. Um, but the rhetoric that we're seeing, the political rhetoric we're seeing, is just vacuous. I argued this in a newsletter I do for the new publication called The Dispatch, which is run by my friend Steve Hayes, um, and had some interesting comments on that newsletter. Um, but I'm going to say, I'm repeated here. I think that this this phrasing is vacuous, right, Bill? It just doesn't really reflect what's going on, and we're going to get into why that is. It's absolutely correct. Um, vacuous, illogical, nonsensical, all of those apply. So back to the Biden, I'm sipping on my coffee here, which means, which is dangerous for you guys because the listeners at home, because 
It means I'm going to start talking faster and faster. I'm a fast-talking <laughs> New Yorker, and this is my third cup of the coffee of the day. And you guys are, in, and I don't like my coffee weak, so you guys are in trouble. Um, but I'll try and slow down a little bit here. Uh, so this paragraph in the Biden essay in Foreign Affairs, it says, um, it reads, it is past time to end the forever wars, which have cost the United States untold blood and treasure. All right, so let's stop right there. Um, first, yeah, the cost of the, of, of the wars that following the post nine conflicts has been high. Um, you know, spent you know hundreds of billions of dollars, perhaps you know some estimates go into the trillions. I, you know, all these estimates are sort of ideologically driven, I think, a lot of times. But the truth is, we have spent a lot of money on it, especially during the peak of the surges in Iraq and then Afghanistan. But Bill, you know, I, I was looking at the Defense Department's budgets. And of course, you know you have to sort of decipher them because the Defense Department doesn't like to be all that uh, forthcoming or transparent. But I think any reading of the Defense Department budget says that the the vast bulk of the spending on this stuff, at least in terms of the Treasure part of that sentence, is in the past. Right, the U.S. has kind of come to a lower cost model for the 9/11 conflicts than what it was in the past. This is not, you know, surge level spending in Iraq or Afghanistan or anywhere else. Right, Bill. Yeah, that's that's correct, Tom. I mean, and you've laid this out with the force deployments, how they, you know, how in the CENTCOM area of operations are just. Yeah, we're going to go in the numbers of small, troops deployed, yeah, troops right. deployed, but the actual expenditures, actual money, the exactly. treasure part of it is down too. It's not. Yeah, you know, we're yeah, going to get into that. Right, we're not conducting surge operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. I mean, these are caretaker operations, special operations at this training operations. Look, and and as far as the treasure part goes. Yeah, I mean, we've mismanaged large parts of the spending in these wars, throwing money at problems and whatnot. But mismanaging isn't a reason to give up vital interest, right, to walk away from vital interest. It means you should refocus your efforts to get that under control and figure out um, how to properly spend your money. And as far as the blood part goes, I am not, uh, you know, I look, I served as, as a signalman and as infantry infantryman myself. A long time ago, so I have an, an understanding of, of, you know, the, the sacrifice that is made, um, but we have not, you know, this hasn't been a uh, World War II, Civil War, Korean War, or even a Vietnam level war of sacrifice here. We're talking 5,000 American soldiers over the course of 20 years killed and a lot more wounded. And again, I don't want anyone to think that I'm downplaying that, but it's not, you know, this was not, um, as far as when it comes to lives being mismanaged, yeah, sure, um, because of our strategy, because of rules of engagement, because of problems. But again, we were attacked on 9-11. We are fighting against jihadists who want to, um, you know, who want to destroy us at the end of the day. And, uh, you know, so at the end of the you know, so it matters. The fight matters. So, you know, th- again, the, the, the treasure on this, yeah, I, I agree. It's, it's very high. The blood, every life matters um, that's lost. But that, that certainly, using that as an argument to stop fighting people that want to kill us, I think that isn't, isn't the reason. I mean, look, if you ask most soldiers, they'll tell you, um, who understand this conflict will tell you that it's, it is worth fighting. What they want is the fight to be fought properly. And we're, in terms of lives lost, two things come to mind. First is, you know, obviously the number of wounded or maimed is very high. One of the weird, yes. weird things about the era we live in is that our medical care has gotten so much better that people who would have died in previous conflicts have remained alive because they've received better treatment. 
um, and it kept going. But that's that's a huge cost to those people and their families to have to you know people who've lost limbs and have had serious head injuries and everything like that. I I you know one of the areas where I tend to be uh, more uh, uh, one of the areas where I desire more sort of government spending or where I'm very happy to turn my taxpayer dollars over to veterans of these conflicts who have who have suffered in one way or another. They are their families. I'm happy. I would be happy to give a good portion of my tax dollars, and some part of it is, but I'd be happy to give more to uh, you know have give them gold plated health care, really, uh, you know, and in all this, and you know that's true. But here's the point going forward. Now we're not suffering the same level of casualties. U.S. I mean, when I say we Americans are not suffering the same level of casualties in 2017, 2018, 2019, or now 2020. That they were in 2004 to say 2011, 12, right? There's been a shift. And the reason for that is there was this shift from the larger counterinsurgency model, which was employed in Iraq for a few years and then abandoned, and then temporarily employed in Afghanistan for about 18 months and then abandoned. Um, those strategy shifts uh, brought with them higher casualty rates. And the U.S. got away from that and is now suffering far fewer casualties, thankfully, every month in these wars. Far, far fewer. Um, if you look at the number of American casualties in Syria, it's very small. Most of the casualties were suffered by the Kurds. There's some, um, I'm talking about uh, basically in the post-2017 era of sort of ending the ISIS territorial caliphate. So the U.S. has thankfully has far, far fewer casualties. I don't know if I have the number off the top of my head, but it's it's relatively small, especially compared to what was in the past. That isn't minimizing the loss of those lives. I actually look up the names every every so often. I try and remind myself of the American service members who have been killed recently in these conflicts because I think it's a good reminder that there is there are lives on the line. There are lives on the line, by the way, for our allies, including Muslim allies in these countries and Iraq, Syria, and elsewhere. Um, so this is this is very costly stuff overall. Don't don't get us wrong. But the U.S. has sort of gone to a lower footprint, which has um, brought about lower number of casualties. So you can't really talk about this as if it's sort of the the surge in, in in Iraq. I mean, you were there in Iraq during the surge, Bill, and you know, talk about what you saw in terms of the casualties there in terms of how Americans were were sort of killed or wounded during that period as compared to now. Yeah, and it it certainly was high. I mean, during the surge and, and even the time before that, you had probably I can't remember the numbers, Tom, but my gut tells me five to ten service members killed or wounded every day. Um, so it was it was very high. Um, I remember I recall the numbers for Afghanistan during that surge, right? And they lost about during that time period around two thousand Americans were killed, and typically the number of wounded could be anywhere from five to ten times higher. Um, you know what bothers me. Um, you know, and look, what I saw, and I did not serve in either of these conflicts, just to be clear, I um, went as an embedded reporter and was out on the front lines with these guys. I always made sure I would get with the units on the ground and then reserve a little bit of time to talk to the colonels and generals to see how they thought that that fighting was going. But to me, it was important to see what the fight was on the ground at the squad, the platoon and company level. That was the, I just uh, thought that being at the tip of the spear was, um, those guys' stories needed to be told. Um, and those guys fought courageously and they fought smartly. And, um, you know, what bothers me about the, both Iraq and Afghanistan is what the, is the, is the blood that they spent and then how it was frittered away. So for Iraq, the, you know, the Obama administration just wanted out of Iraq and right. And then we had to put troops back in at the levels we were going to keep them. So every, for, so the soldiers that, that were killed or wounded during that surge, they sacrificed 
their blood for bad strategy. I mean, that, that, that is demoralizing to American soldiers. And then Afghanistan, to me, is the one that bothers me the most because it I mean, was talk about Helmand. I mean, some of the places where there were these, you know, clearing yeah. operations and holding operations where Americans and Brits and others were fighting against the Taliban and its allies. And then just, you know, who controls that stuff now, Bill? Yeah, that's it's all back in Taliban control or it's contested. And Afghanistan was cynical. President Obama did the surge knowing that he was going to pull the plug on it within within two years. Well, he said he said right away. He said when yeah. he announced it in December 2009. Yeah. Now this, by the way, just for our listeners out there, none of this is defense of the Bush administration's handling all this. Absolutely no, not. No. I mean, but, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I've said for a long time, and I think you have too, Bill, but I, I've said for a long time, I mean, of course the Iraq war was a disastrous mistake. I mean, of course. You know, if I go back and say, I don't agree with all the anti-war after, uh, war arguments, okay, I don't, um, but the way it's been handled and what a- the aftermath and underestimating the jihadi revolution and what they were going to do in Iraq and all these other problems, I mean, is it worth the decision if I go back in time to March 2003 and stop it? Yeah, I would. Of course I would, you know. Um, but the fact is that we were on a path to improve yes. the situation in Iraq and the surge worked. And then we yanked the rug out of that. So the sacrifices of those guys. But the Afghanistan one bothers me more, Tom, because it was 2,000 Americans lost. And, and I think I think it was just 2,000 Americans alone lost their lives during that surge period and for nothing. And it was known, yeah. at least with the with the Iraq surge, President Bush had a strategy. Yes. I mean, don't get me wrong. I If I could build a time machine and go back, I would not get involved in the Iraq war, knowing not just because of where Iraq is today, but how divisive it is, an issue it is. Politically here, um, domestically. I mean, it was d- domestically, it, yeah, so right. discord should, here domestically in ways that unleashed yeah. all sorts of forces, some reasonable criticisms, others unreasonable criticisms. You know, I mean, you know, you, you and I both have to deal with the stuff where you're, I, I just saw it on Twitter today. Some idiot was calling me a neocon. I'm like, yeah, okay. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, good. Yeah, uh, you know, mute. That's the me moving on. You know, so uh. <laughs> yeah, that that Afghan. I know I'm I know I'm harping on it, but it was the most. They literally American lives were thrown away yeah. for a cynical ploy. If he wanted out of Afghanistan, he should have just said, "We're not going to surge. We're going to leave." And guess what? There would have been a lot less American casualties because we're surrendering to the Taliban anyway. It's just. Nine years later, now granted, it's being done under the Trump administration, but these are problems that have spanned two decades now. And, um, you know, again, our problem, Afghanistan, a war needed to be fought. We fought it poorly. Um, We've had bad, you know, we've mentioned this in previous podcasts. Um, bad uh, planning, bad execution, no strategy. Taliban apology, strategy. Yeah, our favorite, you know, rewriting yeah. the history of yeah. Taliban. I get comments, by the way, I get comments every time I write now to somebody who's a service member, claims to be a service member, I think, in Afghanistan, who's just regurgitating some of the Taliban apology at talking points. And I, I have to figure out how to politely respond and say, no, actually, what you're saying, it doesn't actually hold up at all. Um, but, um, yeah, right. I agree. I agree. It's 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 a mess. It's all a big mess. Yeah. Um, it sounds like he should have enlisted with the Taliban instead of. I mean, it's pretty pathetic. I mean, if, if, I mean, if you, I mean, listen, folks, go read the nine eleven commission report. Start there. Just search keyword search on Taliban. What's if you're gonna have a conversation about this? Start there, and you can see all the times that the U.S. gave the Taliban an opportunity to betray Bin Laden and Al Qaeda, and how yeah. many times Mullah Omar and his decision makers decided not to, decided against it. That's called a revealed preference. Look it up. Start there. If you don't know that history, then we can't really have a conversation. And if you're you're buying a revisionist history that's been pushed by some, uh, you know, we're gonna I'm gonna deal with that. I have to deal with that in a future podcast because I just I, it, it bothers me. You know, there's so much evidence that it's wrong. You know, um, 
Uh, but in any event, so we're, we're only in the first sentence here. We haven't even gotten – this is only the first <laughs> sentence. And, you know, one other thing on the first sentence of this Biden paragraph on the Forever Wars and his foreign affairs essay. Here's the other point about this before we move on. What, what bothers me about it too is it frames it um, – it frames these conflicts as if it's purely that America is what's keeping them going. If U.S. presence, military presence is what keep, keeps it going. And as if – you know, the U.S. is why these these are forever wars, why it's going. It's not. It's as if the jihadis don't have a say, as if the jihadis aren't keeping the fight going. But here's the problem, folks. We already tested that theory, didn't we, Bill? We already tested yeah, that theory. Yeah, it was Iraq. Yeah, we tested that theory. Remember, President Obama ran in 2012 in his re-election campaign. He ran on the idea that he brought the Iraq war to a responsible end. Didn't work, right? Didn't happen. If, if, if it was going to be a real responsible end just by pulling American troops out, we would have seen it. Didn't happen. Um, it, we would have seen, and it. in fact, the acts, uh, the opposite happened. It, it it blossomed in Syria. Totally, it blossomed in Iraq for a variety of reasons. It not just the American troop withdrawal, but the of American troop withdrawal. Absolutely, you can't tell me that twenty five thousand American troops in Iraq in two thousand twelve and two thousand thirteen wouldn't have been able to put a stamp down on the ISIS caliphate. Yes, they would have. You know, Tom, ten thousand troops would have done that. Yeah, it would have. It, all we needed to do was savage the Islamic State convoys as they were moving through the deserts. That's all that needed to be done. We would have had the intelligence to do so. We would have had a network set up to you do so. You know, that's so. a great point. Look, they wouldn't have been able to operate openly like you and I were documenting yeah. at the time, you know, with Americans there. They just wouldn't have, you know. Um, so and, no. and by the way, this was the plan. This was the plan. The U.S. was not supposed to withdraw its forces from Iraq until about 2020, if I recall. That was the Petraeus plan for Iraq, and we were there to provide intelligence and air support and advisors and you know special operations forces. There's no way the Islamic State may have tried to organize, and it may have been able to to, to you know build, rebuild its strength in Syria. It would have, but when it would have crossed into the into Iraq, things would have been a lot different, and things would have been a lot different inside Syria and Iraq had. We have, and so what did the Obama administration do? Basically put back the same forces that he had to withdraw in, in December of 2011. And that's, that is horrific strategy. There's never been any real substantial cr criticism of this. And how many American soldiers lost their lives? I know it's probably minuscule, but from that time, from the withdrawal to being put back in while fighting the Islamic State. Well, I would say Trump did in 2016, he had his political criticism of Obama with the crude, you know, argument that Obama was the founder of ISIS, which, you know, come on. I mean, this is... Yeah, as I said, substantial. Yeah, right, right. But, but I mean, in terms of policymaking circles, it's really interesting. You'll see a lot of people criticize the 2003 Iraq War decision. Fine. Okay. And then they don't, they act like, oh, you know, we didn't have a completely overcompensation for that in 2011, 2012 by the Obama administration. You know, President Obama and his team, Ben Rose, those guys, those jokers, they ran against the 2003 Iraq War the entire time they were in office. They had eight years, and they made policy as if they were just basically they basically could snap their fingers and undo the March 2003 decision. World doesn't work that way. You know, you have to play the cards you're dealt, the hand you're dealt. Yeah. And uh, you know that that was sort of really, if you go back, I mean, eventually I'd like to write a history of all this because if you go back to everything they said about that. Yeah, there's stuff. That, I mean, the 2003 Iraq War decision has been criticized. You know, I mean, I don't know how many times. I mean, you can find you can probably purchase 100 books. You know, that are that are going after that, and, and some of their arguments are legitimate. Some of them, in my opinion, are not. Um, but um, it's been far the criticism of the decision making under Obama. The Obama's team has been far more tepid. You know, far for you know, not nearly as Tom Ricks. Tom Ricks writes Fiasco, which dot right, you know, and of course, you know, the title of the book on Iraq. Well, where's Fiasco too on the withdrawal and then yeah. the rise of the Islamic because State? Because politically, just everybody, silence. A lot of the political class was basically souls, and that isn't a criticism of Ricks, right? I mean, he doesn't. I don't know what he's doing these days, but there should have been a. There should have been somebody should have had something along those lines, you know. Uh, yeah. 
And that's because the political class is really, you know, sort of bought into the idea that America can just come home and don't worry about it. We're still on the first sentence here, by the way. Uh, <laughs> no, right. So about two hours later, we yeah, should be yeah. Sometime, that. sometime in September, we should be finished <laughs> this this podcast. But so jihadis get a vote. Just to finish that point, and here's the here's another point about that that bothers me. Before we're gonna we're gonna move in in, in a quicker passion or swiftly through the other sentences. Here's what bothers me about that. You see. This idea of end the endless wars, the endless wars, the forever wars, is used to impugn other Americans, right? Oh, oh, you know, you just want to keep the America in these endless wars. Oh, excuse me. So I'm morally culpable, or you know, which I'm not, of course, and I, I don't even argue for that. Uh, but you know, you can, you can, you can see, or, or you know, recently President Trump took a swipe at uh, Congresswoman Liz Cheney, who's the GOP conference chair, saying she's just upset because um, she, I'm getting America out of these, you know, ridiculous endless wars. Really? So Congresswoman Liz Cheney is to blame for the endless wars, but mm-hmm. not the Taliban, which is still fighting in Afghanistan, looking to overthrow the Afghan government. Not ISIS, right? Not Al-Qaeda, right? Not the jihadis who are terrorists who kill people every day. They're not to blame. No, no, no. You're just impugning the motives of you know, other Americans who maybe, it, in, her, in her case, I say she has legitimate criticisms of the policies, including the deal with the Taliban and other things, uh, other issues here. Um, so how, how does that work, right? I mean, you know, this is what bothers me about it too, Bill. Bill, correct me if I'm wrong. Do you have any decision-making power when it comes to any of this? Absolutely none. I mean, who listens to us, Tom? Right. I, mean, I don't really. either, right? So <laughs> here's the thing. You know who does have some decision-making power? The President of the United States, who's the Commander-in-Chief. So if you're in these endless wars and you're angry about it, President Trump, guess what? End them. Yeah, guess what? You can you can do a lot to, quote-unquote, end America's role in them. Ask President Obama. He ran that course Against ISIS. So it's just totally disingenuous, right? You're the decision maker. You're the one with the power. We don't, we certainly don't have power, right? You know, Liz Cheney has some power in Congress, of course, and other, some other responsible, uh, other Republican lawmakers have some power, although the Democrats control the House right now, of course, you know. But the point is, the people, you can't really criticize um, others on when it comes to the endless word rhetoric. When you are pushed to the decision, you you get offered the, the opportunity to punt on this and say we're done, we're getting out, and you don't. And President Trump, you know, hey, listen, we're here in 2020. He's been president 2017, 2018, 2019. We're more than halfway through now, 2020. That's three and a half years. Guess what? You've had three and a half years to end America's presence in all these countries. You could have just gotten out, and you didn't. That's your decision, nobody else's, right? More than right. That. I mean, look the Taliban deal, right? What? Why was that even necessary? Right. What's get the out. whole point of that? Right. Just get out. That's what we've argued. We're not going to, I mean, look, I, you and I think it'll be, know that it'll be disastrous, but he but certainly the point, has the prerogative to do so. Yeah, and the point is put all, up or shut up, right? If that's it, if yeah. it, really, if the moral, if, if you know, the, the problem with this rhetoric is, if the moral, if, if America is acting immorally by being in these wars, if that's what you believe, which is what the sub, it's the context of this, this argument is, right? If that's what you believe, then act that way. Right and 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 truly end America's presence. If you don't, then shut up. You don't get to keep saying, you know, end the endless wars. You have the power to do it. We do not. You know. Yeah. Um, you are not stopping him. I'm not stopping him. Liz Cheney's not stopping him. Nobody's stopping him. Right. Go ahead and do it. Same thing with Obama. Nobody was stopping him. Nobody stopped well. Obama from withdrawing Iraq. You know. I mean, in fact, the, the, again, as we said, the criticism of that was very tepid. We're going to come back to Iraq in a second because because President Trump was given the opportunity. Just we're recording this on August 21st. And it was just on August 20th. He was given the opportunity once again to say he was going to quote end the endless war in Iraq and didn't. We're going to come back to that. We're going to move on from the first sentence now, though. We're, we're <laughs> moving on. Okay. Any day now. Yeah. So this gets a little easier now a little more downhill because it's more factual now 
or I think that was all factual, but this is a little more pointed, I should say. So the second sentence in the Biden essay in Foreign Affairs says, as I have long argued, this is Biden and his advisors writing now, we should bring the vast majority of our troops home from the wars in Afghanistan and the Middle East and narrowly define our mission as defeating Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State or ISIS. So now there are two parts to that sentence. We're going to break it down. The first part is we should bring the vast majority of our troops home. That's the first part. And the second part is um, we should our mission should be to defeat Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. Bill? Those two ideas uh, basically contradict each other. You know, how are you going to beat? How are you going to beat defeat Al Qaeda and ISIS if you're going to bring almost all American troops home? You're not. And more upfront, as you know, I've I've written about this a couple times now. I've been trying to just accumulate sort of what our footprint, what the American military footprint looks like in terms of combating the jihadis. And so, admittedly, there's some squishy areas here, some problems in trying to figure out these numbers, but. Bill, haven't before I get into the specific numbers, haven't we already brought home the vast majority of American troops from in the wars in Afghanistan and the Middle East? My my recollection is we have, and I'm going to give you the the, the my answer in a second. But that's your recollection, right? I mean, what is what are they uh, talking about? Yeah. We are at minimal levels in, in and Most I'll let places. you do the breakdown. Yeah, and all places. I mean, yeah. where are we at? We don't have ten thousand troops in any of these theaters any longer. Right. So in, two, um, in 2008, two thousand eight. So let's get into the numbers. 2008, Bill. You remember 2008. You, when you were in Iraq, how many times in 2008? Uh, just once. In two, that was my last embed in Iraq. I was in Mosul in, I believe it was the month of March, up in a little bit in April. All right. So yeah. 2008 is close to the peak of American troop deployments. There are about 190,000 troops deployed in, in Afghanistan and Iraq, according to the figures I was able to, to find online. About 190,000 or so. You know. Now, listen, they're contractors, they're support personnel that aren't included in that figure. So that's not the, the grand... That's not the total ticket, uh, total bill, but about 190,000. So a lot, fair number of troops in, across those two theaters. Um, by the time uh, President Obama left office in 2016, that figure was far lower. Uh, by, 2000, by the end of 2016, according to the figures I've seen, there were fewer than 14,000 U.S. service members um, remained in those two countries, in Iraq and Afghanistan. And then you had uh, a few thousand in Syria. So you had, by 2008, so just before President Obama's inauguration, you had about 190,000 American troops deployed across Afghanistan and Iraq. By two, the end of 2016, that number is about 14, fewer than 14,000 in those two countries. Then you have another small presence in Syria. That's the vast majority right there has already come home. Uh, Biden was vice president for you know eight years. You'd think he'd recall that uh, massive shift in resources and massive shift in, in bringing the troops home. Um, you can argue for it, against it, whatever you want to do. Uh, I don't care. This isn't this isn't arguing about the the merits of it. The point is, as a factual matter, the vast majority had already come home. So now let's flash forward to 2017. Yeah, President Trump is now uh, inaugurated as president in January, and from 2017 to now, mid to 2020, he hasn't substantially. He never substantially increased the number of service members anywhere. The only place where there was substantial, uh, uh, noteworthy, I should say, not significant, but noteworthy increase was in Afghanistan, where several thousand more troops were deployed for the train and support mission, as well as counterterrorism efforts. Um, but by June 2020, as far as I can tell, uh, based on reporting in the New York Times and other sources, there are fewer than 15,000 American troops in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria. So end of 2016, you had fewer than 14,000. June 2020, several years later, it's fewer than 15,000 in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria. And most of that fewer than 15,000 number, about 8,600, uh, were stationed in Afghanistan, where you have um, 
further drawdowns uh, planned in the future. We know that the military and State Department are planning on getting the U.S. out. Trump certainly is planning on getting the U.S. out. Secretary of State Pompeo recently confirmed that the U.S. plans to get out by April 2021. So that's it. That's the total number of troops that are deployed across those main theaters uh, of the original 9-11 conflicts. Now, on top of that, um, we should add this. Um, There are, again, this is according to the New York Times reporting, there are about six to 7,000 U.S. troops located across all of Africa, so all across all the African continent, where their primary mission is sort of countering or or standing up local forces, uh, local partners, allies against al-Qaeda and ISIS. So that's 67,000. So in total, we're talking about 22,000 American troops who are in or near jihadi theaters by mid-2020. Just adding up the total, everything I can find on this. Um, and that's way less than uh, than it was at the, at the peak of, uh, of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And it's certainly the vast majority has already come home. So the question to my mind, Bill, is, and I'll tee you up for this, the vast majority have already come home. The question is not bringing home the vast majority. The question is what's going to remain going forward? You know, what? where is America going to have a presence to fight jihadis, if at all, in any of these places? Isn't that really the question now? Yeah. I mean, so look, your, your breakdown shows, right? There's not more or there's less than 5,000 American troops in every country that you've mentioned, right? Except for we, Afghanistan. We have, Afghanistan is the only F- exception. That, that is going to be down to right. 4,600 sure. very shortly. Right. So so that's coming, right? I mean, yeah, I'm factoring it in because it's been announced, right? And that should be happening within, what, the next, by November. So we're talking a couple of months from now. Yeah. Yeah, right. I mean, we have a minimal presence in – we are going to have a minimal presence in Afghanistan. It's going to be a full withdrawal by April. Our administration's already committed to this. Iraq, what, several thousand. Syria, several hundred. As you noted, several thousand in Africa, and that's coming down. If – you know, we're at numbers now where we're, we could only affect things on the margins. And yeah, like you said, where are we fighting if we're down to numbers like this? It's barely caretaker numbers. I'm not trying to I'm not demeaning or or trying to trivialize what those what American troops in those areas are doing. Yeah, I mean, there's still know, a lot of bombing, there's still a lot of cash yeah, casualties you have to all that needs to be tracked, criticized, whatever, right? But the point is in terms of the actual footprint, this is not yeah, this is not D-Day. Right. They they know more than anyone how well they can affect the situation. Sure, they could provide airstrikes to kill this leader or that. And one was just done in, against Shabab, right? They killed an IED planner yeah. uh, attacker in 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 um, Somalia just the other day. Shabab, of course, is Al-Qaeda's branch there. And yet, guess what Shabab did uh, just the other day it, it, at the same time? It took over a town outside of a, a major city in, the, in western and Somalia. And launched attacks in Mogadishu, continuing the attacks in Mogadishu. Exactly. Yeah, so, right. again, these type of th- – these small numbers only affect – um, can only affect these conflicts on the margins. The jihadists, as we draw down in these areas, the jihadists, they only um, increase their operations. The African, Somalia is just a good example of all this. I mean, I just try not to, you know, you know I could talk Afghanistan all day long and I try not to stay focused on that. I want to give some other, other theaters of example. The U.S. military or the U.S. military is going to leave Somalia. The U.S. government pretty much wants out of there, and it's going to keep a minimal presence. Well, guess what? That means the African Union um, is going to get out of Somalia as well because they're not going to shoulder the cost and blood and treasure of these missions. And once that happens, folks, I'm going to tell you, Somalia is going to be back to where it was in 2000, from 2008 to 2011. That's when Shabab, again, which is Al Qaeda's branch in, in East Africa. 
took control of the capital of Mogadishu and nearly all of southern Somalia. And, you know, a lot of bad things happen when that happens. You know, part of what my big problem with this, and I know this is going to bleed over into the next couple of sentences, Tom. But that's it's, okay. It's, Our know, analysis of each sentence is going to go on for yeah. for months if we keep it at this pace, but that's fine. Keep going, yes. <laughs> this bothers me. Narrowly define our mission as defeating Al-Qaeda. That's the second part of the sentence. I mean, what, is it, I mean, what does that even mean, right? I mean, it's... That means that, the, and the view of the, they, and they say it obviously in the two sentences later, maintain our focus on counterterrorism. Well, the problem is, is oh, Biden believes, and, and just about all these policymakers in, in, in Washington believe, that the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda are just these cellular terrorist groups right. whose main goal is to attack the United States or, or U.S. allies' American interests with terror attacks. As if that, if that's goal, that was the Obama theory of jihadism, right? That's where he right. got the, the JV comment for the predecessor ISIS was that, you know, no, they don't, they don't have any international networks capable yeah. of attacking us. Whoops. Ex- um, and, exactly. You know, but it's, uh, you know, it's just interested in holding local ground. Well, you know, you can't, in other words, you can't separate, this is the problem with this thinking, you can't entirely separate the insurgency aspect of their operations from their global terrorism aspect of operations. Yes, they're not one for one. It's not a complete overlap. Of course not. A lot of the local insurgency stuff doesn't necessarily have to do with, you know, uh, attacking the West or threatening the West. But some of it does. And some of these guys go from, you know, involved in insurgency operations to being repurposed for attacks abroad. We've seen that time and time again. Some of the 9-11 hijackers traveled to Afghanistan first because they wanted to go fight in Chechnya. Oops, they were identified as somebody who could be repurposed for the U.S. Or some of the 9-11 hijackers were, went to Afghanistan. They fought alongside the Taliban for the, uh, against yeah. the Northern Alliance. You know, Trained at the same al-Qaeda camps that trained their military. We know that like people right. want to view al-Qaeda as just – or the Islamic State as just these – with a very specific purpose. No, they – I would argue the insurgency aspect of, of this is even more important than the um, – the external attacks or the attacks because the one drives the other. The one gives the capacity to be selective and, and pick its operatives. It allows, it funnels thousands. And, you know, look, I was, I just reread part uh, inside Al Qaeda from uh, Rohan Gunaratna. He said that 25 to 50,000 foreign fighters, just foreign fighters, not talking about Afghans. And I'm pretty sure he wasn't talking about Pakistan. That's the 2002 too. book he wrote, right? Yeah, it was, yep, that's, that's the 2002 that, book. I think it was basically written sort of mostly before 9 11, around 9 11, and published quickly in 2002. Yeah. There are other estimates which are lower than that, of course. But uh, yeah, yes, yeah, 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 I've yeah, seen yeah. 15 to 30. I've I mean, the 9 11 Commission report had, uh, if you look at the staff statement, uh, Statement on the enemy, uh, staff statement number 15, I believe it is. And I think it may be in the text as well, but definitely in staff statement number 15. It's five to 10,000 uh, fighters went through Al-Qaeda-sponsored camps between 1996 and September 10th, 2001, according to their estimate. So, Yeah, and maybe so. I tend to go I, – I believe the higher numbers given what we've seen, but that's uh, fine. Whatever, whatever it is, it's thousands. And, thousands and, of fighters. And only a yes. small percentage of them, as the 9-11 Commission said in 2004. Again, people, go read the 9-11 Commission report. It's not a perfect report, but if you want background information on this stuff and just sort of start to understand it, it is a very good starting point. Um, it's not perfect. There, there are – as we've noticed before, there are sort of key omissions like Jalal and Akani isn't even mentioned. Uh, but there's a lot of basic background facts or details you need to sort of digest in order to understand what's going on. And of the actual people who were recruited by Al-Qaeda to attack the West, it's a very small percentage of the people who were actually trained by Al-Qaeda 
in pre-9-11 Afghanistan. Why is that? They were trained for guerrilla warfare, insurgencies, their political revolution. That's what they were trained to do. And that political revolution is going to keep going whether the U.S. is in these countries or not. Yeah, and again, these camps are used to specifically, they'll take people out and then they'll say, hey, we're going to retask you. These camps are used to evaluate, to evaluate their desires to conduct, you know, suicide attacks or things of that nature. So, again, the insurgency aspect of this is so key. I mean, I'll go back to Somalia. Um, By the way, this is a, I would encourage, there's a, on Netflix, it's called America's Most Wanted. Go watch the third episode of that on, I believe her name is Samantha Lewaith, right? She um she's one of she was married to one of the London bombing uh, train bombing attacks. Um, clearly was involved. In, she winds up she shows up in Somalia several years later, involved in the attack in in um, Nairobi, and uh, you know Americans are involved in these attacks. It's it's fascinating stuff, and this is how this stuff all works. Shabab is just a local local insurgency and yet it goes into kenya and conducts a terror attack that kills what 55 60 people shooting up a mall so there's just the lack of understanding of what al-qaeda what the islamic state or which any jihadist organization how they operate what are their goals people think their goals again just conduct a terror attacks it's not it's to establish global caliphate terror attacks are just merely a means a tactic to help achieve those goals yeah, this all goes to that second part of the sentence. So the first part of the sentence uh, from the, the Biden paragraph in foreign affairs, the Biden essay in foreign affairs, the key paragraph, is we should bring the vast majority of our troops home from the wars in Afghanistan and the Middle East. Check, the U.S. has already done that. The question now is not whether or not that's going to be done and whether what what's the residual presence going to be. That's really the question going forward here. And then the second part of that sentence is that, we, according to Biden, we should narrowly define our mission as defeating al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. Well, you're not going to do that with a residual American presence. You're not going to do right. that with the current presence. It's doubtful we would even have done that with a larger presence at this point, you know. So the the, the point is is that um, it's really, you know, I I've, I wrote this in that newsletter I did for the Dispatch about what I think the de facto American strategy has been, and nobody's explained this as a policymaker. But I think if you and I, maybe you disagree. I don't know. Let me know if you think about this. The de facto American strategy has been basically containment for the Emirates. So the jihadis want to build, so it's Al-Qaeda and ISIS, they both want to build these Emirates that then link up in a caliphate. Yes, they're not close to that, but that still is their goal, long-term goal. Previous policymakers have dismissed that goal out of hand, like John Brennan was counterterrorism advisor to President Obama. He was wrong to do so, um, you know, because that, that that goal still motivates quite a bit of violence. Yes, there are other local factors. None of this is monocausal. But the point is, is that that's the goal. That's what they want to do is they build these emirates. So the de facto American strategy in France and others are involved too has basically been to contain these emirates, stop them from forming. Whether it be in Somalia, like you said, with Mogu, you know, with Shabab, or in West Africa with Al Qaeda and now ISIS, or Afghanistan with the Taliban, which wants to resurrect the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, and then disruption, disruption of international terrorist attacks. That's the twofold sort of uh, what the U.S. has been doing, and, and disruption includes high value targeting, targeting external operatives, that sort of thing. These two sort of parts of the strategy. But the problem is that nobody is actually articulating it that way, even though you can say that that's what's happened. Nobody's actually articulating it that way, let alone, not only is no one articulating it that way, nobody's justifying it. Nobody's saying this, we need we need to keep doing this. Uh, so, Tom, I think the way it, that disruption really is the key, right? And then I think the um, preventing the Emirates is sort of secondary and it's being used uh, by the military, by the, you know, by individuals that do actually understand this. I don't think it, I don't think this is actually a, 
Yeah, no, oh, I don't. I don't think anybody. Do you understand actually, what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Nobody's actually. Like I say, because like, it hasn't been articulated. Nobody's so. articulating this. Nobody's saying this is what they're doing. This is just. Yeah. This is what they sort of backed into, right? This is what right. I call a de facto strategy yeah. because they've sort of, yeah. you know, what, what, you know, what, what is it you're doing in Somalia? If you go to Africom, Africom again, we've said in previous episodes, Africom seems to be of the combatant commands, the one that has the most clue of explaining what's going on, even though yes. it's, it's uneven and there are problems with that, and they don't, they don't like it when you point out that Shabab has some success. Um, Unfairly so, I would say. But uh, the, the AFRICOM seems to have the most clue of what's going on in terms of articulating this type of stuff. And yet even their explanation is sort of half-assed, I would say. Um, and you, cer- and you certainly don't have any senior U.S. military leaders or senior U.S. politicians, you know, any senior politicians. You, don't have the, you certainly don't have the President of the United States. You don't have his main rival, as you see. You don't have anybody explaining any of this in a way the way you and I explained it, right? Or yeah, our, exactly. our, our explanation, anyway. Take it or leave yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, disruption, certainly they'll come out and say they won't talk about, you know, dis, um, disru- disrupting the terrorist plots, right? That's certainly, and I think yeah, what's yeah, happening again— they'll crow again, about like, the high-value killings like Baghdadi and bin Laden right. and Hamza bin Laden. They'll crow about that stuff and say these guys have, you know, threatened America and we got them. Yeah, but then, then it just sort of—that 24-hour news cycle yeah. is gone and they move on. Yeah, and they use the disruption element to, to, in order to disrupt the— caliphate build, building but that's sort of undeclared in all this it's not explicitly mentioned as well, I, I, one caveat part of there, the strategy one caveat i would say there is it's outside of removing the isis caliphate which president trump is running on yes no, I'm, yeah i'm referring he's to trump, the al-qaeda he's, yeah he's, he's trumpeting that the the no yeah. pun intended yeah. of you know and uh, of ending the isis territorial control in iraq and syria um, but beyond that, there's no sense. It, it, again, this is a political disconnect, right? So we're going to say, okay, yeah, yay, go team. We ended the caliphate in Iraq and Syria, but all these other sort of conflicts, whether it be Afghanistan or Somalia, or whatever, where they're, they're that's their goal is to seize territory and form the backbone for a new caliphate. Again, they're not close to that, but that is the goal. Um, even though that's what they're doing, we're not going to talk about that. We're not going to say there's any vested interest in preventing them from doing so. You know, so maybe you know, right? So you see the disconnect, right? On the one hand. Yep. On the one hand, we're, we're you know the U.S. political class is, uh, or President Trump anyway, is cheerleading the end of the ISIS territorial caliphate. I think everybody would say that's a, most people would say that's a good. Although you have some fringe people would say we might as well let them live uh, on as the caliphate. Uh, but most people, I would say that that's a good thing that the caliphate doesn't exist anymore in terms of the territory the size of Great Britain. But outside of that, there's no articulation of their of the enemy's territorial goals or the fact that the U.S. has an interest in preventing them from achieving them. Yeah, and in the case of Afghanistan, of course, as we know, we're actively promoting the reestablishment of an emirate that would be the Taliban because we're treating them as a um, legitimate political actor, uh, as a partner. Yeah, yeah, right. So, yeah. so they can't even hide behind the targeting in 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 the um, in order to disrupt them. So, yeah, and that's and that's how bad thinking, that's how bad decision making happens because there is no there is no strategy here articulated. So it's just sort of made up as we go. Yeah, in fact, the, the whole process in Afghanistan, as we've said, is is hinges on denial, den- denying that this is the Taliban's political goal is to build an emirate, right? Yeah. They're gonna, as you, 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 I love it, Bill, you keep coming back to the, the, the silly ministerial posts that they talk about, right? You know, I mean, yeah, yeah. you think, you know, listen, you think Habatul Akhundzada, whose followers call him the Emir of the Faithful, the same title that's used by a Muslim caliph, Right? Do you think that he is going to want to be the head of what border security and a new in, a new Afghan government, <laughs> or you know, or the police force or something? You know, yeah, maybe, yeah. yeah, maybe a Sharia police force that's going to enforce their draconian code. But I mean, come on, I mean, it's, it's sort of this this active wishful thinking denial of what the Taliban's political goals actually are and what they've been fighting for. You know, and so now we're going to pretend that that isn't. So the, you know, as part of the whitewash getting out. But this is the same goal, and this is what this is what the U.S. 
Um, a lot of analysts don't want to admit, and a lot of people don't admit. What's Shabab fighting for in Somalia? They're fighting to build an emirate. What's AQAP fighting for in Yemen? To build an emirate. What's AQAM fighting for? To build an emirate in West Africa. What's the ISIS branch in West Africa doing? Same thing. What is ISIS doing in the Sinai? They'd like to carve out a little emirate there if they could under the auspices of, you know, under underneath the Egyptian government. What is ISIS doing in Somalia? They got suppressed by Shabab. They wanted to have in the northern part of the country there, Somalia, they wanted to have their own little emirate, right? Um, all these places, that's what they're trying to do. I mean, we go all the way to the Philippines. What was the ISIS branch there doing? They were trying to seize ground. They're trying to seize territory and build a little emirate. That's clearly what they're trying to do here, folks. I mean, that's, yeah. that's their goal. I mean, the fact that we, they, you know, you don't hear that from anybody in the senior sort of classes of the American, uh, you know, sort of institutions, I think speaks a lot of why this, why this is a forever war, because nobody can even articulate what it is that they're, they're fighting for, you know? Um, Bill, is there a place where you think that they're not fighting for that? I mean, that's, a, that's the question I was having. Where are the jihadis fighting where they don't have some sort of emirate goal? Um, no, nowhere. I mean, that is their right. declared goal. I, you know, <laughs> what do they want to do in Kashmir or, or you yeah. know, or Jammu and Kashmir? Exactly. What do they want to do? Right. Yep. They, you know, the fact that the, the, the big debate now between the Al Qaeda side of the jihad for the Kashmiri jihadists and the Pakistani state backed ones is whether or not they're sufficiently committed to building a Sharia state, you know, right. in the area. Right. I mean, that's, that's the, that's part of what they're debating about. Uh, arguing over so I, it's just it's just ludicrous now this is this all goes to the point though that that sentence from biden is that we, you know we should nar- we narrowly focus on defeating al-qaeda and isis you're not going to defeat them truly um as long as their political goals or insurgencies remain active and alive and are trying to um you know basically take territory and build their emirates and in fact at this point i'm not arguing that we can or should try and promote defeating them in that sense i don't think we have the capacity or will to do so Tom, the other irony in all this and the endless wars, and yet let's focus on a counterterrorism mission. This is the best way to continue it. It's the app. You want to continue, you want to have an endless war? Just try and plank at them on the margins. That's a way to ensure that these groups survive and thrive. Yeah. And, and that I, you remain engaged in it. I mean, counterterrorism and, is and a, then have self-criticism. Is a military primarily mission. Yeah. And then have mission. self-criticism for doing it. Right. So it's just this, it's just this twisted sort of paradigm for understanding this stuff right now look you have isolationists you have the sort of the the restrainer crowd or whatever that just basically there's no threat on the planet that requires american action you know these people are not serious either um you know they're sort of they're the inverse of the true neocons i think you can democratize everywhere but i think there are very few real neocons these days um who are or advocate democracy promotion first everywhere in all times uh, but the flip side of that, it's sort of ideological mirror of that would be the restrainers who are far more numerous, I would say, at this point, and who have real, real ideological goals in terms of just, you know, basically the U.S. doesn't need to be anywhere. Um, I would say I don't, obviously you and I don't follow either one of those polls. The, the, point, the point we're trying to figure out here is trying to articulate what's actually going on, what the enemy's mission is, and how sort of disconnected the political rhetoric is in the U.S. from what's actually going on. Yeah, no. Hey, tell and yes, absolutely. And one Bill, thing are you a neocon? Bill, are you a neocon? By the way, no, no. <laughs> absolutely not. <laughs> and one thing that popped in my mind when you mentioned yeah. neocon, well, what about those who came? What do you call those who came out during the Arab Spring and were saying that j- this jihadism is dead and democracy is spreading out throughout the m- Middle East? We were the were ones criticizing neocons? that. We were the ones saying you guys are <laughs> underestimating what the jihadis are doing and democracy is not coming yeah. to most of these countries. But, you know, and we were, we're criticized for saying that, even though we were right. We're, you know. 
were people on the left side of the spectrum who were touting this? Were they neocons? I know it's all because they're talking about democracy. Yeah, neocons. These it's labels another, are just silly. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's a smear. It's a smear word. It's meant to it basically is. you know smear people with. And it's stupid. And I see on Twitter sometimes like today, but whatever. Yeah, uh, so, whatever. So that was the second sentence. So we got through two sentences now. It's pretty good. Now, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to let you handle, minutes in. I'm going to let you handle the third sentence here. Uh, the, the, yeah. We should also end our support for the Saudi-led war in Yemen. So this is what Biden is advising right in foreign affairs. Yeah. And, 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 and folks, this will be quick. Okay, fine. I mean, look, I have no truck for the Saudi government. Um, very problematic. Um, the reality is, is they're, they're battling the Houthis. Uh, the Saudis are supporting the Yemeni uh government, rump government, whatever you want to call it, which is battling the Houthis for control of Yemen. The Houthis are backed by Iran. They were instigated they're instigated to this fight by the Iranians. So if Iran is really deemed as a threat, um and I don't know, I mean given Biden's, you know, history with Obama and giving them billions of dollars, while by the way, we've just confirmed six cases of where the Iranians provided bounties for American troops in Afghanistan. Oh, not confirmed, but reported anyway, yeah. Or reported, I'm sorry. Yeah, at least we have ones identified it, right? Yeah. Um, and don't think this intelligence wasn't flowing through the Obama administration when it cut its deal with the Iranians. Although most of those are 2019. Most of those are recent, yeah, but yeah. we have reports back to 2010 sure, sure. of Iranians putting bounties on American troops. So, okay, so the Iranians, gonna are they going to end their support for the— for the uh, Houthis, once the U.S. ends its support for the Saudis, is that an American interest? And by the way, the American support for the Saudi-led war effort is really just intelligence and weapons and things of that nature. So you're not putting any blood and really no treasure. No American blood. I mean, the, the issue there. The American is, blood. The issue there is, of course, the Saudi campaign. The Saudis are not. Um, as targeted as they should be. Discriminating. Yeah, uh, they, absolutely. They kill lots and of civilians neither, and there's a lot to criticize there, sure. And yeah. neither neither are the Houthis, right? It's right. this is this is war. Well that's that's between, your point, right? Is that is that a lot of these people who are criticized and fine, criticize the Saudi led effort in Yemen. Yep. You can you know, I have criticized them for hosting Sheikh Zindani, a US designated terrorist who's supposedly absolutely. a non travel ban and he's a guy who was identified as one of um you know, Bin Laden, Osama Bin Laden's earliest mentors or backers, right? He's somebody who still goes to Saudi Arabia. And, and there's sort of a weird dynamic there in terms of the, the war fighting in Yemen where the Saudis, you know, appear to have an accommodation at times with the jihadis, including AQAP. But then other times they're helping the U.S. track down senior AQAP uh, leaders. There's no doubt about that, um, at least not to my mind. Um, but you know, a lot of these people that criticize the Saudi-led effort, they are mysteriously quiet about the Iranian-led effort, right? So yeah. the Houthis can launch ballistic missiles into Saudi Arabia, and oh, that's what? That's not that's not endless war. That's not a forever yeah. war. That's not part of the, the the conflict. That's not the instigating issue here, you know. Clearly, at civilian targets, those rocket attacks, those missile attacks that are going into Saudi Arabia and the Gulf countries. I mean, you know, it's the, you know we're not talking about a contained war inside of uh, inside of Yemen. The the Houthis want to spread this war. But fine, go ahead. Let's just end our our support for the Saudi-led effort again. That doesn't mean that the war will end. The array, that just means that the that the Houthis are more likely to win this conflict. And if you think that's an American interest, fine. And the only complicating factor there too, when you say fine ended, the only other complicating factor there too is, um, and again, this shows how one-dimensional this sentence is in terms of understanding Yemen. I, I don't have any doubt in my mind the Saudis have helped the U.S. Um, with the high value targeting campaign against Absolutely AQAP. Absolutely have. And AQAP, of course, threatens the U.S. There's no doubt it does. They, had, you know, they, they obviously had the sleeper agent that was responsible for the shooting in Pensacola in December of last year. There's a whole string of other plots. 
Um, that's not their number one priority at the moment, but it's something they still have a vested interest in is, is, is keep an eye on, on attacking the U.S. or U.S. interests. Um, I think the Saudis have helped the America in that regard. It's not a defense overall of the Saudis. I think it's just a fact of what they've been doing. Um, so, you know, again, this is the one-dimensional understanding of the war to say – to see that the only thing that they that the authors of this paragraph saw is the U.S. arms and, and other support to the Saudi bombing campaign. Fine, criticize that. But none of the other factors would be the Iranian support for the Houthis or Saudi support for the U.S. targeting senior AQAP leaders or disrupting plots. None of that is factored in here. And if you want to improve the chances that the U.S. may actually have to put boots on the ground again in, inside Yemen, let the Iranians win this one. Let the the Sunnis involved in Saudi Arabia flock to AQAP because they'll wind up being the only effective partner to um, to battle the Houthis. And then, you know, because look, just because the AQAP isn't really putting a lot of effort that we know of to focus attacks on America, although there was right now, right I mean, now, at any, the, at any moment they could, you know, any moment they could have something the, like Pensacola shooting or something. Exactly. Or, but, yeah. the, the switch can be flipped at any time. They play a long game, folks. It's not, they're not playing, you know, for election cycles. They're playing these games for decades. They're focusing their efforts on regeneration and battling the Houthis and battling the Saudi government when they have, I'm not, sorry, the, uh, the Yemeni government when they have to or separatists when they have to. Because you got that mad Game of Thrones situations going on in Yemen, but that doesn't mean that they're not a, a direct threat to the United States. And I'm just talking about this specifically. If you just want to look at this from American interest side, right? Just looking at it as I want to stop attacks on the U.S. homeland specifically, right? Like you know, then you find you, you want to play game. You, you'll tailor your strategy to that. But I think you know, you can't win or you can't effectively fight these wars, let alone win, have a chance of winning them if you don't put skin in the game. The Iranians are willing to put skin in the game. They're willing to do it in Iraq. They're doing to do it in Yemen. They're doing it in Afghanistan. They're doing it in Syria. They're doing it in Lebanon. Although they do it mainly through proxies. Through proxies, which, but know, they're, the, yeah. They're, they're, they're proxy war, yeah. Absolutely. The Iranians are, are you know kings of the proxy warfare yeah. in these places. But a lot of Iranian um, generals and officers sure. died in Iraq and have died in Syria. I know in Afghanistan it's yep. more of a... But look, would you be shocked to find that the, the you'd have Iranian military advisors with the Taliban? I wouldn't. If I mean, it hasn't happened. We haven't found one, but that doesn't mean it isn't happening. Yeah. So actually, you, you mentioned counterterrorism. This gets us to the next sentence, yes. which is that the Biden and his team say, we must maintain our focus on counterterrorism around the world and at home. But staying entrenched in unwinnable conflicts drains our capacity to lead on other issues that require our attention and it prevents us from rebuilding the other instruments of American power. Now, there are multiple components of this. Um, we must maintain our focus on counterterrorism. Well, I think you've just heard a bunch of reasons why it's going to be tough to do that if you pull Americans home from everywhere, right, Bill? I mean, how do you how do you think about, maybe you could walk people through, think about some of the logistical issues that arise from, say, withdrawing from Afghanistan or uh, totally. It's a landlocked country. Um, how does the U.S. go about hitting al-Qaeda targets in Afghanistan or uh, hitting uh, al-Qaeda targets in northern Pakistan. Um, you know, the, the raid against Osama bin Laden in May 2011 was launched from Afghanistan, right? Uh, helicopter raid. Um, you have numerous instances where the drone campaign, uh, where are you going to launch drone strikes from? Where are you going to go after them? Now, listen, again, there are isolationists. There are other sort of radicals who will say, you know, they denounce all American military action, all counterterrorism action by the U.S. And they say, fine, end all that. We don't need any of it. Okay. You know, that, that that's one camp of thinking. But if you think we're going to need some of it, 
going forward. How do you do it? How do you do it there? How do you reach into Mali, right? Abdul Malik Trukdel was killed this year. Um, it was logistical support from AFRICOM. They found him in northern Mali. I think I'm, if I remember correctly, the French and Americans worked together to do that. How do you do that if there are no American forces in West Africa? Um, how do you go kill the IED bomb maker for Shabab? Or, you know, I'm sure the Shabab senior leadership is being targeted right now. How do you do that if there are no American troops in Somalia or in East Africa? How do you do it? How do you attack AQAP? How do you go after AQAP leaders in Yemen if you don't? Now, obviously, that's a little bit different. America doesn't have a actual significant presence in Yemen in any way that we can quantify like these other countries, but there's something going on there, right, Bill? So and offshore and everything. So so what's going on? So how, how is America going to keep killing terrorists or hunting terrorists? Again, putting aside those who say we don't need to. How's America going to keep doing that if we just came home from everywhere? Yeah, the answer is poorly. Um, look, if you disengage from the Middle East, from Afghanistan, from Africa, from any theater where terrorists are actively operating and they're operating these insurgencies you're losing your intelligence networks you're losing again the ability you laid it out just fine right basing for drone or airstrikes or special operations raids um it's all it's and once it's gone there is not going to be any political support to put that back put the to re um deploy forces there you'd need a 9-11 style attack in order to sort of uh, invigorate the american public to get them and i'm not even sure that that would be sufficient. I suspect there'd be a lot of finger pointing um, domestically. So, you know, what would you have to do? You really have to rely on local intelligence, local groups. Think about a country like Somalia, for instance. Again, I keep turning back to Somalia, but I think it's a, it's a great case in point. You have a barely existent police force, a poor military, you know, a, a barely functioning government. And yet this is what we're going to rely on, say, targeting information and intelligence in order to go after Shabab, which, by the way, has conducted foreign plots to attack the United States. I mean, the first American suicide bombers, you know, they came from Minnesota and launched attacks in Somalia. Most people don't understand that. Um, the U.S., um, Government is still to this day very they don't even understand how many Americans went to Somalia for training and if they've come back to the United States. Uh, but when you when you disengage, you lose all that. What happened in Iraq when we disengaged, when we left Iraq, we lost access to our intelligence network with the Sunni tribes in Anbar province and Nineveh province, which is where Mosul is, Salahuddin in central Iraq and Diyala in Baghdad's proper because when you disengage from these areas you lose those relationships okay maybe you could argue well this is a job for the cia but we're talking about you know theaters that are not it, it, the cia isn't built for for this type of thing in my opinion these are these are vast battlefields again you're not just dealing with groups that are operating in a cellular nature. You're dealing with entire insurgencies with tens of thousands of fighters in some theaters, 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 fighters active or more active in some areas. How are, How is this going to be done? Look, look what happened when the U.S. decided to take a light footprint. I realized um, at the beginning of the war in Afghanistan, for instance, what the U.S. decided to take a light footprint at Tora Bora and relied on locals to contain and capture Osama bin Laden and other all and Al Qaeda that was holed up in those mountains. Well, what happened? They all, by all accounts, they cut the these locals cut deals with Al Qaeda, allowed them to escape into Pakistan, 
and jihadism has blossomed to this since this day i i still maintain if we had we this would be a very different world this would be a very different war i'm not even sure it would still be a war i mean i can't again can't build a time machine and prove this but what would happen if we got zawahiri and bin laden and Everyone who escaped from the time. That's the counterfactual we like to talk yeah. about. I mean, I, I think I would have been a, I think you can make the case in that. I think there have been few opportunities for America to launch the knockout punch and not get involved in these long-term conflicts. And that was probably one of them. And I it's because we took a minimalist approach because we relied on local allies, quote unquote allies to deal with a problem. When we take our, our foot off the pedal, um, we're letting someone else drive the car, and and that is not in our best interest. So this same sentence here, we must maintain our focus on counterterrorism. We just talked about the problems there, and then part of that sentence is, but staying entrenched in unwinnable conflicts drains our capacity to lead on other issues that require our attention. Now, this is just a few words after saying that our mission should be defeating Al Qaeda and the Islamic State or ISIS. Then we have a sentence saying, but staying in entrenched in unwinnable conflicts drains. Uh, uh, our capacity to lead on other issues. Now, wait a minute. If you're going to defeat Al-Qaeda and ISIS, you're going to have to be involved in these conflicts. Um, and if they're unwinnable, then you can't defeat them, right? So this is a contradiction. You can't you can't both defeat them and be in an unwinnable conflict, right? If it's unwinnable conflict, then there's no defeat. Um, and, and the point is, is that, you know, so again, this just doesn't really show any understanding of what's going on. It's, you know, it's all, it's contradictory from one sentence to the next. It's disturbing too, because you could summon, you know, when you get to the end of the sentence, I'll, I'll just add that in. And it prevents us from build, rebuilding other instruments of American power. What they're basically telling me is I can't walk and chew gum at the same time. And these, the, you yeah, can't do, can't do these, can't do this type of counterterrorism stuff and do other things. Yeah. Right. You know? Like, so I'm incapable of having my focus on multiple issues that affect the, the uh, American public, the, the national security of the American public. I mean, yeah, fine. Let's uh, let's put that guy in office. Um, but I mean, I think that's again. I think it's everybody's like that now. Well, Nobody yes, really right. But I'm just saying this opinion. isn't. You know, ex- I couldn't agree with you more. I'm just saying this is not a. You know, to me, this I isn't mean, a selling point to vote for someone. They're openly admitting yeah. I can't do two things at once that are vital to the national security of the of the American. And I mean, even the, the Trump administration, they put out the national defense strategy and national security strategy. These two documents. They basically have a rank order that they put great power competition with China and Russia first, and then they have a series of other things. They have the rogue states, and then they have uh, extremism, counterterrorism issues, that kind of thing. And they, they sort of say they can walk and chew gum at the same time. But we know that what's happened a lot of times, we've, at least we've heard the argument, especially in defense circles, that we need to get out of these 9-11 wars entirely because we got to focus on great power competition. Well, you know, you just lost a bunch of supposedly unwinnable conflicts because, you know, or at least, you're, you know, you didn't win them. Is waiting, and you're going to tell me you got to go fight somewhere else, which I am skeptical of, of course. Um, uh, you know, but in terms of the resource allocation issue, in terms of building up our defensive resources or uh, resources to sort of interfere with China's designs in the Pacific, uh, you know, South China Sea, or when it comes to Russians' machinations against NATO or something like that. Uh, you know, again, I keep looking into the Defense Department's budget and other issues. And you, first of all, most of the troops are already home, so. There's not a lot of troops to take out of these theaters to put in the Pacific or somewhere else. Uh, when I looked into it, the Indo-Pacific Command, which is, is the largest combatant command, and according to the Defense Department, it's four times bigger than any other combatant command, including CENTCOM, which is the one that's principally, the combatant command that's principally charged with the what we call the 9-11 wars. 
Um, and more, it's four times bigger than Africa, of course. So Indo-Pacific Command already has, you know, according to the Defense Department, 370,000 plus personnel assigned to it. I don't know, you know, how many more people you need to send there. I mean, how, how to my mind, when I look at the budget, look at personnel allocations, I don't see this idea um, that these conflicts, I don't see, a, a, I don't think it's justified to argue that these conflicts are getting in the way of the Defense Department doing something else or being worried about something else. Most of the Defense Department's money is spent on other things. It's spent, you know... You know, is all the, the cost overruns on the F-35, is that due to the 9-11 wars? No. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's all sorts of problems you can point to here on all this stuff. Um, and yeah, I mean, you, you have a, a this again, this is this is sort of this mindset. This, this is an argument. Now, I'm sort of reading into what Biden said here, of course, but I'm, ta- and I'm talking more about the argument that we hear now about great power competition as it relates to the 9-11 conflicts. This is more of an argument against sort of 2003 Iraq war up to the large-scale surge uh, effort in Iraq and in Afghanistan, both of which ended years ago. Neither one of those are going on right now. So you can argue against the past and say, we can't do that. Okay, I'm not arguing for it. But that's not what America's doing right now. So, you know, in terms of resource allocation and where it's going. So again, it's just sort of vacuous. It doesn't really reflect the current reality on the ground. No, I could, Tom, I, I couldn't have said that any better. Not in a million years. So I, I don't know. I mean, all this stuff is sort of empty. Uh, that's that. We got through the paragraph. Well, so we yeah. did it. Uh, it took us an hour. We got through that paragraph okay. from the by, you know, Biden foreign, affair, foreign affairs. But the, again, this isn't just about this Biden essay in foreign affairs and foreign policy. It's also about Trump and about uh, all the politicos and all these people who are talking about stuff. But here's let's leave it on a Trump-related point because uh, I, I just noticed this. So we're recording this on August 21st. And on August 20th, uh, President Trump, at a press briefing alongside the Iraqi prime minister. This is before a meeting. And what I found interesting about this is, you know, if you go to President Trump's Twitter feed or see, hear him at rallies or, hear, you know, hear his supporters talk, his most ardent supporters talk at times, you'll hear all sorts of stuff about the endless wars, the forever wars, and there's sort of this nefarious cast that's put on all this as if, you know, there's some, uh, you know, some other parties are keeping us in this conflict and really we should just leave. Well, here, President Trump was given yet another opportunity to, announced that he was going to end or move, take moves to end the American military presence in Iraq. Okay, he could he could do that. Obama did it. Um, I don't see any reason why he couldn't take move, make moves along those lines and, and start doing that. And he meets alongside the Iraqi prime minister uh, on August 20th. And he instead of doing that, he justified the American presence in yeah. Iraq. He said, we're down to a very small number of our soldiers in Iraq now. That's true. It's some reporting says several thousand. Still, it's a lot smaller than what it was in the past. Um, he was given the opportunity to say that America will fully withdraw from Iraq within the next three years. Apparently, there was some reporting along these lines when the reporter said to him, hey, you know, what about this report that you're going to be fully out of Iraq in the next three years? Three years, Bill. Next three years, right? And so what did he say? Did he said, yeah, we're going to be out in the next three years. Did he say we're going to be out this year or 2021? Or no, he punted. He said, so at some point, we'll obviously be gone. We will be gone. Oh, okay. So at some point, we will obviously be gone. Thank you. Uh, you know, we brought it down to a very, very low level. This is Trump speaking. And then he justified the presence both on military terms and economic terms. He went into his whole oil argument and <laughs> a version of that and everything. things. Uh, but the point is, okay, you know, uh, this is again, it, it, what bothers me is he can't get on Twitter or do the political rallies. I mean, he can't, he does it. He can't do, he can't, when he's speaking, blast the endless wars and sort of cast, you know, sort of the implication other Americans are keeping us in these wars and I'm getting us out of it. No, 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 no. You had the opportunity here to end the American presence in Iraq. You just had this meeting. 
You're obviously convinced to stay. You keep a small presence there. You're given the opportunity to say, no, we're out within three years and said, no, I'm not even going to do that. So if you're if you're full on MAGA or you're full on Trump supporter or Trump guy or or whatever, right? Don't tell me that Long War Journal or Representative Liz Cheney or any of these people are what's keeping us in the endless wars. I don't want to hear it. Yeah. You know, your guy is keeping us in the endless wars. Your guy is the one that has the actual power and has the ability to make a decision here, and he decided against it. Now this isn't. I'm not. You know, listen. Parts of his of his his talk were reasonable. I'm not. You know. Blasting President Trump's reasoning here. I think parts are reasonable, they're debatable, whatever. You can have whatever opinion you want of the substance of it. The point is, there's only one guy here in the room that has the power to actually act on this. It ain't me. It isn't Bill, right? And he, he didn't, right? So, I mean, this is why this bothers me and why we're having a second episode of Endless Jihad on this type of stuff. Because please, don't go off and on and on and on about the endless wars or forever wars and then take actions that, that contradict what you're saying. Right. No, absolutely, Tom. I mean, it's it's just stunning, you know, the logical disconnects that exist throughout all of this. Uh, you know, we need to end the endless wars, but maintain a counterterrorism mission. We need to get out of Iraq, but stay in Iraq and not give you a, a, a timeline for when we're going to leave. Well, just make up your mind. Uh, you know, I may not agree with it, but I'll at least understand it. But I can't understand the policy of, of, of either Trump or Biden when it comes to these issues, because at the end of the day, they don't really have one. And that, I think, is the real real meaning of this episode of Endless Jihad. I think we're going to leave it there. That That's exactly right. America doesn't really have any kind of overarching strategy other than sort of this cognitive dissonance here, where on the one hand, America wants to be out of all this, and on the other hand, keeps finding itself finding it necessary to take some action that's not justification of everything it's sort of an observation i think we'll leave it there absolutely um and the and the endless jihad folks yeah so thanks again to everybody out there for listening to this week's episode of generation jihad um, please do subscribe to the show and if you can rate us on apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating that'd be great be excellent much appreciated um, as a reminder, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere else you're listening to shows. Hit that subscribe button, hit that like button, or however any of this works. I don't even really know, to be honest with you. And we'll see you again next week. <laughs>